A reading from the book of Exodus, chapter 24, starting with verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua his aide, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went on up the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain forty days and forty nights. The Word of the Lord. reading from the second letter of Peter, chapter 1, starting with verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, through hu- though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, conversing with him. Then Peter said to Jesus in reply, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud cast a shadow over them. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell prostrate and were very much afraid. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and do not be afraid. And when the disciples raised their eyes, they saw no one else but Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, Do not tell the vision to anyone until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. 
So we have reached the final Sunday in the season after Epiphany, which is often called Transfiguration Sunday. Epiphany is the season of revelation. It's Christ revealed to the world. And throughout this season, uh, we've seen all of these stories of God being revealed, Christ being revealed in the world. So the season began with the Magi who followed a star in the night sky, followed by the baptism of Jesus, when the Father's voice says, This is my Son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. And now the season concludes with another revelation of who Jesus is. He is transfigured before his disciples in power and glory as once again we hear the Father's same words, this is my son whom I love, in him I am well pleased. Now this event reminds us of the places in life where we stand today on the precipice between heaven and earth. That there are these spaces in life where we see the intersection of God's space and of our space. Specifically, we experience this in the sacraments, but you may have experienced sacramental moments throughout your life, perhaps a moment in your family life or um, in a piece of art or literature or something that, that you just realize there's something more here, <laughs> there's something transcendent here that I can't fully explain. In fact, in the Celtic Christian tradition, there are moments and actual places in the world that are referred to as thin places, these places where the veil between heaven and earth are thin, where we experience God perhaps in a way that might be different than at other times. We're also reminded that in this story that God is present with us at the heights of spirituality, when things feel amazing and strong and powerful and we see God as clearly as we think we can see him in this life, but also with us in those moments where God feels fully absent, that he is still there. So today in our story, we reach a mountaintop, <laughs> but then we know that we're headed after this story to the cross. Both are present here. So Jesus is taking his disciples up on a mountain where he is transfigured before them. The story is strange. In fact, in ancient literature, there's not much like this particular event. The three disciples are by themselves with Jesus. He becomes transfigured. His face is shining like the sun. His clothes become dazzling white. In fact, I think it's another um, account of this story, but it says more than anyone could bleach them, which I think is a really interesting anecdote. But what's going on here? Well, you could say Jesus is being revealed as divine, which is true. That's right. But if that's, if that's all that's going on here, why is everyone else in the story shining? In Luke's account, we have Moses and Elijah shining as well, and they're not divine. So if the shining is only about divinity, what's, what's present with Moses and Elijah? Well, we get a bit of a clue of this when earlier in Matthew's gospel, Jesus had said that God's people will one day shine like stars. This is a quote from the prophet Daniel. So Jesus reveals who God is, but in revealing who God is, it tells us something about who his people are called to be and yet are unable to be on our own. So Jesus is not like putting on a show for the disciples. This isn't a magic trick. Hey, look how I can shine. No, and he doesn't become something different in this moment than he was before. No, he reveals who he is, that he is the light. In fact, this theme of light is all throughout the Bible. As Peter has said in our epistle reading that we read, Jesus is the morning star. Jesus' perfect humanity is the model for the glory with which all of his people will one day share. 
And it doesn't mean he just sets an example for us, though that's true. But as we are with Jesus, we are transformed and we're changed. Jesus leads us into who he has created us to be and who we will one day fully become. But it's not enough to say, okay, Jesus reveals his humanity or Jesus reveals his divinity. No, it's just Jesus is revealed. (laughs) He is here, and that's enough to say. But of course, the transfiguration is not the end of the story. The glory that is revealed here, the dazzling, the shining that's revealed is not all that there is. Transfiguration now points us to the cross. And this is why this reading is so appropriate as we step into Lent this coming Wednesday. Because shining like stars seems amazing. Like that's extraordinary. That's a big deal. Dying on a cross seems like something anybody could do. But there's something profound about the cross. The act of God taking on human flesh and dying is something we look at and we go, only the God who gives himself for the world would do this. Only the loving, self-giving God would do this. And this is how we know him. So God is God fully in both moments, in transfiguration, awe, and with us in crucified suffering. We see this throughout scripture. The book of Revelation says that the lion is also the lamb. But the two are not polarized. They're together. So in the life of Jesus, we see humanity and divinity, heaven and earth, ordinary and extraordinary, natural and supernatural, all coming together in this profound way. So therefore, we have to hold these two events together, the transfiguration and the cross. Now look at this. In the transfiguration, we've got all these interesting details. Jesus is on a mountain outside of Jerusalem. He's fully revealed in glory. His clothes are shining white. He's flanked on one side by Moses, the other side by Elijah. These are Israel's greatest heroes. There's a brightness. And in the midst of this brightness, Peter blurts out, this is wonderful. We need to be here. And a voice from God himself declares, this is my son. Now, thinking about that, transfiguration. Now think about the cross. The crucifixion is also on a mountain outside of Jerusalem. Jesus is revealed not in glory, but in shame. His clothes have been ripped off of him, not shining bright. In fact, the soldiers are gambling for them. He's flanked not by Israel's heroes, but by two of Israel's zealots, murderers who represent the level that Israel has run away from their calling to be a blessing to the nations. Darkness has covered the land. Peter is not blurting out, this is really good to be here, He's hiding in shame after he's denied even knowing Jesus. And then it's not the voice of the Father that we hear in this way. It's a pagan soldier who declares mockingly, this is the Son of God. We're always called to see these two stories together, to see the cross in glory and to see glory in the cross. God's power and love and beauty surprise us at every turn. And this is, I think, the the point that's so important for us. We are surprised, ever surprised by God. As soon as we think we've got God figured out, we've got the right box for God, that our system fits perfectly, get ready for a surprise. Everything is upended. It also means we should look for that power and love and beauty, not in the places we would often expect to find them, but in the unexpected places. 
In fact, the life of the disciple is one of taking up our cross and following Jesus, which is really difficult. The Christian life is hard. <laughs> we've, we've lived in generation after generation of, in, in this country, and we're blessed in a lot of ways for this, of, of Christianity being part of kind of our cultural background and backbone, right? The, the profession of Christianity. Um, but as our world is changing, I think one of the things that's so profound is recapturing. Actually, it's really hard to live as a Christian. <laughs> it's challenging. It hurts. It means denying those things that are easy and attractive. But somehow we affirm that true glory is somehow found in the midst of that. I'm curious about Peter's reaction here. So he seemingly blurts out something random. He wants to have something to say. He wants to be able to process it, explain it, somehow affirm it, but he can't come up with a sentence that's going to do this event justice. I wonder if you've ever been in a situation like that before. Um, if you've ever been in a moment so rich with emotion and you maybe say the wrong thing just so you can kind of have something to say. So Peter clumsily tries to come up with some kind of memorial to honor the event. And it might be easy to just think Peter's silly here and crazy. Oh, Peter, always coming up with something ridiculous. But what do you think you would say in a moment like this? I wonder what I would say. Peter is so overcome with love that he affirms, this is good for me to be here. And then he says, a tent. We need tents. That's what we need. You may have heard that over the past couple weeks, um, I'm sure many of you have heard about this already, there's been a significant event that's broken out on the campus of Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. And when I hear about revivals or outpourings or awakenings, I, I grew up in the charismatic tradition, a revivalist tradition of Christianity. And uh, a lot of people don't believe that about me, and I don't really carry myself as a revivalist, you know. Um, but I did one time, I was pastoring years ago and was preaching in the church, and, and then I talked to a guy afterwards who was an Episcopal friar who had been attending our church regularly. I said, well, you know, I grew up in the charismatic tradition. And he went, I know. Like, oh, really? He said, yeah, it's, it's in you. I can see. I'm like, okay, that's fine. But because of some of the experiences I had, anytime I hear about revival or, you know, these kind of things, I tend to side-eye a little bit. I kind of go, okay, what's this? What's going on? Because obviously true revival can't be just generated. And I've tried to see, I've seen so many people in my life try to make revival happen, manipulate a revival. But this one caught my attention, partly because it's at Asbury. This is not an irresponsible place or a manipulative place. I was struck that this is, event was student-led, that there's no central personality. It consists almost entirely of confession of sin and singing. Started to hear from scholars at Asbury, many of whom I've quoted here, um, people I deeply respect, all saying, this is real. But what I noticed is they weren't using words like powerful and dramatic. They were using words like sweet and precious. The president of Asbury Seminary has even said, which Asbury University and Asbury Seminary are across the street from each other, but they're different schools. But the seminary president has said, we should call this an awakening right now rather than a revival. Because if it's a revival, we'll see justice, forgiveness, reconciliation, and other virtues because of this. So we don't know yet if it's a revival, but it's an awakening. So our family did something a little odd 
we decided to go to Wilmore this last week. <laughs> and you guys know me, I'm the farthest thing from a revival chaser. I don't do that. I was just fascinated by what's happening. So we went up there, we stood in line for three hours, <laughs> couldn't get into the main chapel or any of the overflow chapels. And honestly, as I reflected on it, it was probably good because the more I sat there and the more I processed what was happening, I realized this is for the students of Asbury. <laughs> this is for what God is doing in their midst, and we celebrate that. But the thing that's exhausted me about this whole thing is the fact that every Christian leader seems to have to have a take on the Asbury revival, <laughs> on what's, you know, what's happening here. So we take this precious and sweet thing, and we try to fit it into our categories or make a declaration of what it's about. Several well-known figures tried to get up and make an appearance at Asbury, but the college asked them, please don't come. Some of the revivalist strand folks have said, we need to take what's happening at Asbury and go into all of our churches. Some others have said, well, no, this can't be anything because we haven't seen any works of justice come out of it yet. Kind of that kind of extreme reaction of, no, like this can't even be a good thing at all. And the frustration I felt is we've put so much pressure on these students in rural Kentucky who have been compelled to confess their sins and sing songs of worship, and we've tried to make it into a big thing, right? Can't we celebrate the precious thing that God is doing in their midst for what it is? Something is happening here, and let's just let it be what it is. It doesn't have to be fodder for our culture wars. It doesn't have to be an impulse for something huge. We can say, God, thank you for what you're doing in the hearts of Asbury University students. Now, God speaks new things and creates new experiences all the time. It's impossible to fix such things in time. The old thing that has been done exists to prepare us for what's next. At the same time, there's a tension. Soren Kierkegaard once said, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. So we as Christians are a people rooted in God's faithfulness in the past, both to us, the things we've experienced in God's faithfulness, and those who have gone before us. So we can only see how God is working in the present and in the future when we truly live into the story of God's faithfulness in the past. If the transfiguration is about Jesus leading us into what we will one day be, we need to always remember his past faithfulness. Now, this event had a significant impact on Peter, and we see that in our epistle reading, where the transfiguration served as an anchor point for Peter and for the early church. So Peter comes up with this plan for tents, and then it says, while he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And the word for overshadowed is the word tabernacled or tented. So if you look at this, Peter blurts out he wants to build tents, and then God gives him what he asks for as a work of God, not a work of Peter. It's an unexpected way. And then we see Moses and Elijah, they, they show up. That's a part of the beauty of this story. And then they're gone by verse 8. So in this moment, there's two pillars of Israel. If you look at their lives and their stories, each of them had profound mountaintop experiences of their own. And they're pointing to Jesus and they're saying, our whole story, our lives, and the commitment that we've made to our faith is fulfilled in this guy, in Jesus. So the danger in tent building 
is when our life often becomes more about the experience or the tent we build or the way we want to capture that experience than about the God who is present with us. We tend to box in how we think God is supposed to work, but God always surprises us. In fact, Peter, in this moment, he thinks that this is the end. So Jesus is revealed in glory. Great. Now we're going to conquer our Roman enemies. We're going to rise up with military strength. This is the end. This is the kingdom. And that would make sense. Jesus is shining. He's got Moses and Elijah here. This is the end. But no, there's more to come. And the more to come will be harder than this. It will not look as pretty as this even though it will be surprising just as this is surprising. Author Leonard Sweet once compared the Christian life to a boat. So he said the church is the boat itself. We're riding in a boat. Jesus is the North Star, so we're always guided by Jesus. The Bible is the map, which is always oriented to the North Star. And he said tradition is the anchor, which... Tradition, when you think about an anchor, you could go, oh, well, that, yeah, because that sticks, it keeps us stuck, right? But no, think about what an anchor does. It doesn't hold you back. It's what you cast forward to get where you're going, right? Tradition matters. We must be a people who follow our story, who are led by the anchor, who know we're not alone in this whole church thing, that there are those who have gone before us and created beautiful expressions of this story. And as we follow this story, it leads us into all the new things God has for us. Listening to tradition doesn't mean being stuck. It means moving forward. As Moses and Elijah pointed to Jesus, our traditions are supposed to point us to Christ. And we can do this in ways that aren't so churchy either. <laughs> Sometimes maybe you say, hey, I don't really have spiritual experiences that I'm holding on to and trying to build tents or whatever towards. But, but we get locked into a career, a relationship, a way that we define ourselves to such a point that we don't have room in our lives for surprise, for God to show up and surprise us. Or we have a grass is always greener situation where we're just chasing the next experience, the next career opportunity, the next vacation, and we miss what God is doing in our midst right now. Perhaps our life is not about having a few experiences that we hold tightly to and build our lives around. It's not about chasing the next experience. Perhaps it's about building our lives on the person of Jesus, following him faithfully every day in the boring times and exciting times, in the challenging times and in the comforting times. It's about allowing him to surprise us with his glory over and over again. Awakening in your life may not look like it does at Asbury. In fact, I think there's reasons these tend to happen on college campuses more, more intentionally because of the culture that's there and living to, you know, in community and all of those kind of things. Maybe it doesn't look like hours of worship songs and laying on your face, but it may look like the humility to see God in your everyday experiences, to be surprised by the transforming work of the everyday. Both Moses and Elijah experienced God speaking in dramatic ways in their lives. Moses is given the law and the glory shows on his face. Elijah calls down fire from heaven. heaven. The fire from heaven burns the sacrifice. It's this powerful experience. And yet immediately after Elijah met God on the mountain, it, he goes into despair. 
And God speaks to him, but he doesn't speak to him through fire anymore. In fact, there's a, an earthquake that passes by. You can read the story. There's so all these things that pass by, and God says, I'm not in that. I'm not in that. I'm not. But then God speaks to him in a still, small voice. Some translations say God spoke to him in utter silence. God is with us even in silence. God's silence. There may be times in your life where you have a powerful experience, and we need to give, give glory to God for that. Thank you, God, for that. But we have to hold those things loosely. When we have a profound encounter with God, we can fully celebrate God's gift while realizing this isn't everything. This isn't the whole story. He's given us this gift to benefit others. And then there will be times, if you walk with Jesus for long enough, where God feels absent. We have to hold those experiences loosely as well. Because there will be times in our lives where we will feel that way. But it's important to remember that God is always with us and always working. If you experience emptiness, distance from God, or doubts, it doesn't have to mean something. You don't have to put a category on it. You're not like, hey, I'm experiencing doubt, so I'm, I'm deconstructing my faith, or I'm part of this camp, or whatever. You don't have to put those labels on it, right? The feeling of absence can actually be a gift, too. Because we do not understand why God allows us to feel his absence. But even in feeling that, God can do something in us. Father Chris Green says that we need to practice the absence of God. <laughs> that when we don't feel God near, it ought to lead us to wonder, where's he at work? Both feelings of God's presence and feelings of God's absence are gifts. Because it means God is always at work in our midst, no matter what we feel. And sometimes, like the disciples, we're afraid of God's presence. It's overwhelming. But God says to us, as he said to the disciples at the transfiguration, do not be afraid. Sometimes we're afraid of God's absence. After this event, the disciples will march to the cross. And just as they didn't understand the transfiguration, they will not understand the crucifixion. And yet, God's word is the same to them. Do not be afraid. So I wrap things up here. We are about to embark on the season of Lent, which is a journey to the cross. This is a season of repentance, humility, and preparation. At Ash Wednesday, we are reminded, you're going to be reminded that you are going to die. <laughs> That's the reminder of Ash Wednesday. So it's a real happy, clappy kind of service. Now, it's that reminder that we're, we're limited, right? Our life is limited. But this is a time to trust in God's faithfulness to those ways in which God has proved God's self-faithful over and over again, to give thanks to God for the ways in which we have seen him in glory, to give thanks for the story that's been passed down to us in the scriptures and through the church. And we need to remember these moments and our story for the next stage of our journey. We need to remember that God does not call his people to be experienced chasers, but those formed in his ways. In the transfiguration, the disciples do not understand what they've experienced, and they will not understand what lays ahead, the journey to the cross. And yet Christ is with them in both realities. So in this season, we remember that the road of discipleship is the journey to the cross. This is a time to listen for God in the silence. 
God, what are you doing even in the times where I can't feel or experience you? What are you doing in the times where we struggle with and don't, don't see you clearly and even struggle to think about your faithfulness? It's a time to ask God to open our eyes to how he's working in the lives of our neighbor. Lord, surprise us with your work in even unexpected places. And this means we're called to be a listening people and a humbling people. So may we have the grace to celebrate the profound heaven meets earth experiences in our life. Not jumping to being cynical or dismissive about them, but truly celebrating God's work. And may we have the grace to remember that God is at work even when we cannot see. Amen.